Okay, so we're in Matthew chapter 12 again today. And before we start uh, today's teaching, let's, let's talk about last week a little bit. We went in Matthew 12, 15 through 32 last week. And one of the main things we talked about last week was this issue in verses 18 through 21 about whether Jesus open air preached, whether he lift up his voice like a trumpet and preached the gospel to sinners. And people will use these verses in here, uh, like verse 19, to say he didn't do that. When it says he did not quarrel nor cry out, nor anyone heard his voice in the he's talking about one particular thing. And what's that one particular thing he's talking about? Anyone remember? Nobody? Uh, he, did, he says he didn't quarrel nor cry out nor anyone will hear his voice in the streets. But that's not talking about in a general way. He's talking about one particular issue he didn't quarrel or cry out about. That he was the Messiah. That's right. And we went to the account that was found, um, it was in, I think it was in Mark or Luke, where it talks about this. And it, he actually is telling the demons that are coming out, be quiet, don't tell anyone this. And so he's, in regards to his Messiahship, and being the Son of God. That's what it's referring to there. Not not crying out or not preaching at all. I mean, that would contradict the rest of Scripture, the accounts we see of him preaching to tens, you know, thousands of people. Mark Mark 3. Thank you, sister. And so it was Mark 3. Uh, so, you know, Jesus feeding the 5,000 men plus women and children. And then the 4,000 men plus women and children. And we just have one woman and one child per each man. That's 15,000. That's 12,000 people. He's not whispering. Okay, so we know we we looked at that a little bit last week, and then we looked at this issue of this demon possessed man, and, and they accused him of casting out by the power of Satan, and Jesus gave a three point sermonette on why that couldn't be true. One, because that would be foolish for Satan to drive himself out of someone who he ever had control over. That'd make no sense. The house divided against itself will not stand. Uh, he used the issue of their sons or their disciples driving out demons. Now, if he drives out by demons by Beelzebub, then who are your sons driving out demons by? And if you think they drive out by that way, then they'll be your judges because I'm driving it out the same way, by the power of God. And then uh, this issue of the, how can a one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man, talking about Satan. He's trying to plunder Satan's goods. Sinners. So he's trying to set the captives free. And so he binds him first, not on his side, he binds him first, and then he plunders his goods. And then another issue we talked about last week was this issue of the unpardonable sin. Now, what was the sin that Jesus was referring to there? What sin were, were, was he referring to specifically there? Blessing the Holy Spirit, but in detail, what does that mean? What were they doing? That Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan. But who was he actually casting out by? The power of the Holy Spirit. So they were calling the power of the Holy Spirit the power of the devil. You have to go really far to do that. And so that, that was, the, that was the, the unpardonable sin. And he, and he even says, you know, the sins against me, you'll be forgiven. The sins against the Holy Spirit, not be forgiven. So, and some people to reason because they're talking about Jesus specifically here that this this actually sin couldn't be committed today. Uh, I I don't I don't hold that position. I, I think that if anyone is saying that the power of the Holy Spirit is actually the power of demons, 
they're treading on dangerous ground. Okay. And one, one thing I want to bring up that I didn't, I didn't really touch on last week is this verse 30 where it says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. And I talked about Jesus making them make a decision here. Because the, you know, the Pharisees are trying to sway this crowd from Jesus' side, because they, all these, those people followed Jesus. They followed him. After he, he tried to escape their plotting against him and wanting to destroy him. We saw earlier on in this chapter. And so they followed him. And so the Pharisees, there's all these people who are following him, they're trying to get him to turn back to the Pharisees and what they're doing. So he's making a call here to, to make a decision. Either it's the devil and the Pharisees, or it's me and the Holy Spirit. That's your option. But I, I want to focus on the last part here just for a second. It says, he does not gather with me scatters abroad. Now what's the implication of that saying of Jesus for those who do not evangelize? If you're not gathering with me, what are you doing? You're scattering abroad. And so there's, there's a real implication here for someone who chooses not to do anything for Jesus in the Great Commission and sit on the sideline, they're actually scattering abroad. There's no middle ground here. You're either with him or you're against him. You're either gathering with him or you're scattering abroad. Right. You're either ashamed of me and my words in this wicked and adulterous generation, or you'll stand up for me and my words. And if you're ashamed of me, how will I feel when I come? I will be ashamed of you. you know, so this, this is real important. I mean, it, it, it doesn't mention evangelism here, but that's what gathering is. You're trying to gather people to Christ by evangelizing, by preaching the gospel to them. Okay, so let's start in verse 33 this week, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say to you, for every idle word men may speak, and they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of, his, of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. <coughs> the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repent at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he find it, finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last day of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be with this wicked generation. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brother stood outside, seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, 
who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward the disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother, or my brother and my sister and mother. All right, so we are here in this first section here, 33 through 37, we have this issue of a tree being known by its fruit. And according to Matthew 7, 17 through 20, let me just read it for you here. Let's see what Jesus says about bad trees and bad fruit. Even so, every, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by your fruits, by their fruits, you shall you will know them. So, what happens to a tree that is a bad tree that bears bad fruit? Cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, Calvinism and Calvinists would have you believe that what kind of tree you are, and what kind of fruit you produce, is involuntary on your part. And it's permanent. Okay? If God has chosen you for salvation, at some point in time in history, in your life, you'll become a Christian, and that's a permanent state. Permanent. And if God didn't choose you, you're permanently a bad tree. But see, that doesn't seem to comport or make sense with what Jesus is saying here. He's making a call to people to do something. Either you make the tree good and the fruit good, or you make the tree bad and the fruit bad. He's calling them to do that. And what we see here is that there's, there's an option for them. If they already are a bad tree with bad fruit, he's calling them to make their tree good and their fruit good. But if they're on the line here, they're going towards bad fruit, good fruit. He said, you know, choose one or the other. Choose for yourself. And one of the passages they will use to help support this idea that uh, you're this way involuntarily, you can't help it, uh, yourself is, is Romans chapter 3. And I'm going to look at just for a second here. This is one of the passages they'll use to prove total inability slash total depravity, and we've talked about that many times in this fellowship in the past, is Romans 3, uh, 9 through 20. Let me just start in verse 10 for a second, because that's, that's where the, they'll start with their doctrine here, and they'll try to prove it for, starting in verse 10. And th Now, Starting in verse 10, all the way through verse 18, this is a bunch of Old Testament quotes. If you have a reference Bible, you can see in your, your reference column there, it'll give references to every Old Testament passage quoting from. And this is what it says, starting in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In a way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So you see it's a pretty you know, universal declaration here. And they'll use this passion and say, look, you have no ability to do righteous. You have no ability to do good. Uh, you are born this way. But I see nothing about birth in here. I see nothing about ability in here. I see a declaration about how the human race does act. That's what I see. And if we want to see what Paul is trying to say here, we simply go back to verse 9, and we'll go down through verse 20. Let's look at what verse 9 says. What then? Are we better than they? Well, who's the we and who's the they there? We'll find out in a second. Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks, 
that they are all under sin. So the we is Jews, because Paul's a Jew. That's the we. And the Greeks is the they. And he said, are we better than they? Are the Jews better than the Greeks? And he just went through this in Romans 2. You can read back in Romans 2. He just went through this very thing. Are we better than they? No, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they're all under sin. So he's proving to Jewish people, that's the we, that we are not better than the Gentiles. And he proves it by going to the Old Testament scriptures, which are written to the Jewish people originally, and look, it says, look, there's no one righteous. You've sinned too. And that's the point he's making in this whole Old Testament quoting from verse 10 to verse 18. He's quoting to them that you are sinners just like the Gentiles. And you see in verse 19, he says this. Then we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Now, who are those who are originally under the law? The Jewish people. That's what it's referring to here. That every, and this is the reason why. That every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. So once you've sinned, you've become guilty before God. And no amount of obeying the law will make you less guilty or make you innocent once again. That's why verse says in verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So once you sin, you can't, there's no longer a, a chance to be justified by the law. You must keep the law perfectly every moment, every day of your life in order to be justified by it. Of course, it doesn't negate our obedience to the moral law of God once we become Christians. But he's saying to the Jews here, you're no better than the Gentiles. Don't think you are because you have the law of God, because you have the patriarchs, because you have this history of God. You can read through Romans to yourself. Uh, later on, but that's the point he's making here. He's not saying that everyone who's everyone's born a sinner, or that everyone who is bad is bad involuntarily because of what Adam did, or because of the way you're born, or because of the state of the world. They've chosen to be that way, and so that is not a, that cannot be a proof text to prove original sin or sinful nature or total depravity or total inability. It cannot be used to prove that. And of course, verse 33, what Jesus is saying here goes completely against that idea anyway. And then we have in verse uh, 34, brood of vipers. Now a brood is, a, is the offspring of something, or the children of something. So he's calling them the, the children or offspring of vipers or serpents or snakes. So he's calling them, he's calling them the children of the, of the devil. In a roundabout kind of way. But that, that would make them very angry, because they consider themselves children of Abraham. And to some degree they are. Descendants of him. They're not walking according to his faith. And those are the true offspring of Abraham. So how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So that's the point he's making here. How can you, being evil, speak good things? So the, the, the tree here, in, in this passage, is synonymous with your heart. Make the tree good and the fruit good, or make the tree bad and the fruit bad. Make your heart good and the fruit that comes from your heart or make the heart bad and the fruit that comes from your heart bad. So they're synonymous here. Tree and heart are synonymous because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let's turn to Mark 7 for a second here. And Jesus just got through talking about how uh, ceremonial washing will not make you unclean. And then he goes on to talk in verse 14 of Mark 7. When he, Jesus, had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, 
Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you, per do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his, his mouth, or it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murderers, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. So it's the state of your heart which what determines how you will act and what kind of fruit you produce. It determines what kind of tree you are. But who's in control of the state of your heart? You are. God's not controlling the state of your heart. The state of your heart is not an involuntary thing on your part. It's a voluntary thing. It's free will. You have a choice to make on what kind of heart you will have. And it's not a permanent thing because Jesus is talking to both the good trees and the bad trees here and tells them to make it good or make it bad. It's not a permanent thing. You're not forced to be a good tree. You're not forced to be a bad tree. And getting converted and becoming a Christian does not make you a good tree permanently. You can go back to being a bad tree. But God forbid. God forbid you do. As long as you keep your, good, your tree good, what did Jesus say in Matthew 7? A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. So keep the tree good. Keep your heart good. Keep it cleansed before God. Abide in him. Remain in his will. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he tells me, he tells me words aren't meaningless. Words reveal something. He uses on the streets all the time. Filthy words are cut out of someone's mouth and say, oh, it's just words. No, no, not according to Jesus it isn't. It reveals your heart. It reveals what kind of tree you are by what comes out of your mouth. Even if it's not cuss words, it reveals what kind of tree you are. And then in verse 35, Jesus says, a good man. Ooh, the Calvinists must hate that three words right there. A good man? I thought there was no such thing as a good man. I thought Romans 3 proved there's no such thing as a good man. No one is righteous, no, not one, right? So when the Bible says no one is righteous, no, not one, it's saying that no one can ever be righteous? No, not one? There's never been a righteous person to face the earth beside Jesus and God? Never? Then who's Jesus talking to here? Who, who's this good man that out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things? Thou see, can be good man. Not good in the sense that God, because Jesus does say, there's no one good but God alone. So we have to define what we're talking about here. When Jesus says that, he's obviously talking about good, completely, never been bad. But here, Jesus knows who he's talking to. He knows he's talking to people who have sinned before. He's not saying to them, you're a good man, you've never sinned before. He's saying a good man is someone who is right now has good fruit, a good tree, and a good heart. That's what it means. He's walking according to the light and the knowledge he has. In complete obedience. 
So let's look at some good people in the Bible. Because the Bible does say there's some good people. In Luke 1.6, we have the parents of John the Baptist. Let's see what it says about them. Luke writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. And we'll actually start in verse 5. There was, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Blameless. All the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. John the Baptist's parents. I guess God knew what he was doing when he picked the parents of John the Baptist and who he would be born to. And then we have Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 24. And it says, and Enoch walked with God and he was not for a God took him. I said, well, Enoch walked with God. It doesn't say he was holy. It doesn't say he was pure. But I want to relate this back to what it says about Noah here in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8 and 9. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. So Noah walked with God. It was said to him that he was just man and perfect in his generations. It says Enoch walked with God. And uh, being that Enoch was one of the only ones who was taken from the Lord without taken by the Lord without dying, and he walked with God. You know, and some, and some Calvinists would have you believe that this uh, thing of Noah being perfect, that he was made perfect by God, uh, and that's the only way he was perfect, not perfect in any other way, uh, and it was because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord first, and that's why he was put in the ark. Not because Noah was righteous first, and then he found grace in the eyes of the Lord, it was the other way around. But let's, let's turn to Genesis 7-1, and we'll see what God says about why Noah was picked for the ark. The Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Genesis 7-1. What? Righteous before me in this generation? But I thought back in Genesis 6 it said that uh, the intent of man's heart was only evil continually. Well, I guess that doesn't include Noah, does it? I guess it doesn't include Noah. It, I mean, that's probably why it says in verse 8, but, but, every time you see the word but, it usually means there's an exception there. There's some kind of exception there. Noah was the exception. Do you think God's going to say, I'm going to destroy everybody, I'm going to do everything over, but I'm going to start with this wicked guy again who's every thought of his heart is only evil continually? Why even bother? If they're all evil, just wipe them all out and start again and make someone from dust of the earth. But Noah was different. He was perfect in his generations. A just man. He walked with God. He was righteous. And that's why God chose him and put him in the ark and not somebody else. Now, that doesn't mean that Noah never sinned. It doesn't mean that Noah does not have the ability to sin, because he did sin when he got the boat, didn't he? Didn't he get drunk? So he sinned. Which goes to prove, once again, what Jesus is saying in Matthew uh, 12, 33, that you can change your tree. You can change the state of your heart at any point in time if you want to. You're not in a permanent state. Noah wasn't. You won't be. And even Zacharias... What happened to him? When he finally got into the temple and he was offering up the, the sacrifice, what happened to him? He doubted. And what did the angel do? Struck him blind. 
So even Zacharias didn't have to stay that way. But he was that way. And then we have David. It says in 1 Samuel 13. <clears throat> Samuel speaking to Saul here, who was then the king of Israel. 1 Samuel 13 and verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have you establish your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. So the Lord is going to search out a man after his own heart. And uh, who does he find? Let's look in 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made all, seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel urged, said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are, you, are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will, we will not sit down till he comes. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good-looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. So the Lord was looking at David's heart. And the Lord was seeking after a man after his own heart, and he chose David. And uh, I'm not going to turn there, but Acts 13.22 affirms this. That is talking about David, who was a man after God's own heart. So he was. He was a good man, with good fruit, and man after God's own heart. And God saw his heart and chose him according to his heart. Now, did David, was that a permanent state for David? Was he forced to stay that way? No. He eventually did what with Bathsheba? Adultery. Tried to bring Uriah in and trick him, but his noble man would not go home to his wife, and, then he, and they had Uriah killed. So these people, it was said about these people, that they were good men, they were righteous men, and then we have Job, Job chapter 1. David did repent, that's correct. Yeah, David did repent, which means he, he didn't have to stay a bad tree. Went from a good tree to a bad tree and back to a good tree. We have Job, Job chapter 1. In verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz, or Uz, I don't know how it's pronounced. It's probably not Uz, though. Uh, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. Blameless and upright. And then down in verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And then down in chapter 2 and verse 3, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Job was a holy, blameless, upright, none like him on the earth kind of man. 
And in the end, Job, uh, you know, he, didn't, he hadn't sinned. And that's the ironic thing about the book of Job. Is that Job, his claim against his friends the whole time, is that he's done nothing wrong to deserve this. And he was right. He had done nothing wrong to deserve. It wasn't a matter of deserving or not deserving. Okay? He had not sinned. And, he, and at the end, who prayed for who at the end? Job prayed for his friends. Yeah. So J Job, he remained a good tree throughout that whole process. Yep, they consider the source of the problem uh, God. And, and they also assume that when bad things happen, it's because you've sinned. And they assume that, that you couldn't be holy. And you read through Job, and they're, they're assuming that left and right. And oftentimes, Calvinists will use quotes from Job's friends in the book of Job to prove you can't obey God. So ironic. Which tells me we should be praying for them. Just like Job prayed for his friends. That they'll open their eyes and see this. So there are good men. And you can be a good man. You can be a good woman. He produces good fruit. One of the greatest tricks the devil has ever used is to tell someone you can't obey God. That God's commandments are impossible. One of the greatest tricks. If you believe that, you're never going to obey God. You'll never obey Him. And just like you know, Paul said to Timothy, your doctrine will affect you. And the whole facet doctrine that you've been given from the Bible that it may save not only you, but your hearers. Those who you speak to, about, speak to about doctrine. So a good man of good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word, every idle word, just think about that. Let us sink in for a second. Every idle word, every careless word, every useless word, every indifferent word, every lazy word. Tight ring on your tongues. You know, I imagine a horse that's kind of wild. You keep a tight ring on it, so keep it, you know, no, whoa, horsey. And guess what you need to do with your tongue? Keep a tight rein on it. According to Psalms, it has the power of life and death in it. You need to keep a tight rein on it. Because for every idle word... That men speak, they will give an account on the day of judgment. Every idle word. Be very careful about the words that come out of our mouth. Very careful. Very careful. Even when we're joking around. We need to be very careful. It's okay to have fun, to joke around, but we need to be very careful. Whose feelings may be hurting. Your tongue has the power of life and death. If we're going too far joking around with somebody about a certain issue and going on and on about the same thing, you know, that can, that can get on somebody. You can go too far. And this, you notice it says day of judgment, not days of judgment. How many judgment days are there? One? I thought Hebrews 9.27 said, it's a point a man wants to die after it's come to judgment. Don't you get judges right after you die? No. That's another false idea going around Christianity. You don't get judged as soon as you die. You wait in Hades for Judgment Day at the end of the millennial reign. At, and after the millennial reign, Satan comes back and, and deceives the nations again 
and then the end comes, then judgment day comes. So you don't get judged as soon as you die. Yes, judgment comes after death. I agree with that when it comes to order. It doesn't happen right after you die. You're not going to have your own little private judgment day and then someone else has one five years later and so on and so forth. There's a day of judgment. A day of judgment. But your words are important. Well, there's a type of punishment there. There's a type of punishment. There's not a judgment day. Uh, but they do understand, I believe, what's to come. And as they sit there and wait, just like someone sits in a jail cell. They haven't been judged yet by the judge. My sister, before she had her court date, she sat in the jail cell. And she waited for her judgment day. And then her sentence was passed. Whether she'd be in there for a long time or be in there for a short period of time. That's what's going to happen. But this is going to be public for everyone to see. That God's justice will reign forever. Now some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now this is not the same group that accused them of being of Beelzebub. If you read the Luke 11 account, you will see that's a different group. But they're all, I mean, they're all Pharisees and scribes. They're all, in this, they're all but not the ones who called them Beelzebub. But they're asking him for a sign. Wait a minute. Didn't he just show him a sign? Didn't he just drive out a demon a minute ago? And so what they're basically saying is that wasn't good enough for us. And this, this really reminds me of the, the issue I, I've seen in atheist debates, and I've seen it myself in my discourse with them, is you ask them, say, well, what? they say, well, prove to me God exists. Well, what proof would be good enough for you? Well, you know, you've seen a debate, well, if he made this podium rise up and float in the air for five minutes and then come back down, I would say there's a God. Um, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You'd, you'd find some way of saying there must have been some kind of strings attached or something. I, I just couldn't see it. Because the steady of their heart isn't right. So no matter, no amount of signs is going to help these people. Because Jesus calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. And no amount of signs is going to help them. I says, I'm not going to give you any more signs. Sorry. The signs are beneficial for those who have a heart of wanting to believe. But someone comes to the table and says, there is no God. I know there's no God. It doesn't matter what you do. What God does is not going to prove it to them. And think about this for a second. When someone says, God, show me a sign right now or, and I'll believe in you. Who's really being God there? Who's really being God there? Do they have the right to tell God what to do? So it doesn't make any sense in light of the truth. So they thought his sign wasn't good enough. Even after his three-point sermon on why it should have been good enough, they still didn't think it was good enough. And then he says that they'll be given the sign of him being in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. There's always this question about where Hades exists. Heart of the earth, I guess. Not real sure what that means. Uh, but the heart is usually means the center. So that's where it exists. I'm not saying we should dig down and find out. Uh, but that's where he was. The heart of the earth. For three days and three nights. And we know he was in Hades. In the rest of the scriptures. So where's Hades located? Well, heart of the earth. That's what it seems to be saying here. And then we have this uh, thing we've talked about many times, the issue of knowledge equals accountability. And let's just, let's just, I mean, we know what he's saying here with Nineveh and with the, with the Queen of Sheba, but let's, let's just reason this through here for a second. Now, Nineveh were heathen, okay, heathen. 
Not Jews raised under the law of God. They were heathen. They had a man preach to them. And this man was a very reluctant prophet who didn't love the people he was preaching to. In fact, after he was done, he still hadn't learned his lesson by being in the great fish for three days and three nights. He still wanted God to destroy Nineveh. And yet they repented. So a man came to them and prophet came to them reluctantly, who didn't love them, and he's preaching to heathen, not people raised in the law of God, and they repented. But here we have the man God preaching to people who were raised under the law of God, who had the prophets, had the temple, had the testimonies of all the miracles done and provision of God in history. And he comes to them, not reluctantly, but willingly. And they don't repent. That's why they're going to have greater judgment. Then we have the Queen of Sheba. You want to read about the account of her coming to see Solomon? Go to 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. So you can get them all the details there. But she traveled, I tried to figure this out on a map last night, over 1,000 miles. Okay, Sheba, we don't know exactly where it is. But it's either in Ethiopia, it wasn't Ethiopia, modern-day Ethiopia, um, Eritrea, I think that's how you pronounce it, to the north of that, north uh, east of that, or in Yemen, across the Red Sea from that. So in one of those areas. She traveled over a thousand miles, not in, not in the Toyota, Toyota Camry or a Honda Accord, you know, by camel and by foot. A thousand miles. That's like traveling from here to San Antonio, Texas. On foot. To hear the wisdom of a man. She traveled to him. She listened to the wisdom of man. She brought lots of great gifts, talents and talents and talents of gold, lots of gold. And she was in awe of his wisdom. But he's just a man. And here we have the God-man coming down from heaven, coming to them, bringing the wisdom of God, wisest man ever walked the face of the earth, wiser than Solomon. And they don't repent, and they violently reject him and crucify him. They call him demon-possessed and ask him for a sign. They have greater judgment. Greater judgment. And he had already been doing signs for months or years at this point. Yes. In front of them, they knew about it. They were investigating it. They were... He embarrassed them with it. I mean, just before this, uh, from last week, the week before, he healed someone on the Sabbath. Uh, so they just... Right. So he's been doing this over and over again. So they're hardening their hearts. So they're softening their hearts. They're hardening their hearts. Beware of hardening your heart. You hear the same truth. You see the same miracles over and over again. And you don't submit to it. After a while, you become dull of hearing. You harden your hearts. You don't submit to the truth. Very dangerous place to be in. And now here we come to this part where I want to go to Ray Comfort's autobiography. This issue of demon possession. Now here we have this issue of this Demon being driven out of a man. He gets his life in order. He cleans it up. Doesn't repent. Doesn't trust in Christ. Doesn't get the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of him. So his house is still empty. That demon comes back and says, wait a minute, this guy didn't repent? What a fool he is. Let me go with some of my friends over here. Bam! Worse than the first. And you know, he's really relating this back to them because he just drove a demon out of a guy and they're accusing him of driving out by demons. No, I drove it out by real, but the real thing. And one of the examples he gives them is their own sons or disciples driving out demons. And if their sons or their disciples have the ability to drive out demons, 
They have no power to fill someone with the Holy Spirit to save them, to, to make them full again. Jesus does. He's saying, listen, you're rejecting. You're saying what I'm doing is by the power of Satan, but I'm the only one who has the ability to fill that house back up with what it's supposed to be filled up with. So more demons don't come back and fill you back up with worse, make you worse than you were in the beginning. So let's go to the, let's go to this biography for a second. Go to page um, 103. Yes. <coughs> this incident Ray Comfort had, a demon possessed person. Uh, actually, starting on page 102. Okay, page 102, the last complete paragraph there. It says, The second incident happened after I had been preaching in the square in New Zealand. Two girls approached me and said they wanted to talk about something personal. I asked them if it was about demons. Surprised, they said that it was. One of the girls was having continual blackouts. For no apparent reason, she would black out at various times of the day. The blackouts became so frequent that the girls suspected something spiritual was involved. I told them to come to my office at 2 p.m. that afternoon. This is while Sue and I were running in the Drug Prevention Center in the dome of the Regent Theater building. <coughs> the girls arrived at precisely 2 p.m. Frankly, I was surprised they showed up. I ushered them into my office and began to question the one with the problem. Besides the blackout, she was having suicidal thoughts, and after some probing, I learned that she hated her father. At that point, someone came into the center. So I said I would pray for her after I served the customer. I stood at the counter. Suddenly, her friend burst from my office in tears and blurted out that the young lady was writhing on the floor. The customer left rather quickly. I raced back to my office and found her crawling on her hands and knees, groaning, screaming, and making animal-like noises. Once again, my astute perception told me that this was not normal behavior for a young lady. I commanded the spirit to manifest and name itself so that I would know how to pray. No, no, it screamed. I persisted. It shrieked, hate, hate. I named the spirit of hate and commanded it to leave. If you find this hard to believe, consider how I felt. You were only reading about it. I found myself right in the midst of something supernatural, illogical, and irrational, but I couldn't deny its reality. And those spirit identified itself as suicide. I said, those are personalities. What is your name? Soul, it screamed. How long have you been in this person? Twelve years. How did you gain access? Easily. <coughs> During the manifestation, the spirits referred to the teenager as her. That is, they were separate from her personality. Following after I prayed for about an hour, she came to herself and seemed free. I told her, we will call her Jane, to become a Christian, or she would end up in a worse state than she had been. So Ray Cuffert warned her about this. Now let's find out what happened. I began to question Jane about her past. She told me about, that about 12 years ago, at the age of 7, she had begun talking with a friend. This friend was invisible but very real to Jane. So real, in fact, that she asked her mother if he could come to dinner. He used to tell Jane stories. They were bad ones that started off good, if she was in a good mood, and good, good ones if she was in a bad mood. A few days later, I received a card from Jane thanking me for praying with her. She said that she now felt free. On the card, she gave a reference for a Bible verse that she said meant a lot to her. We turned to it, and it didn't make sense, as it was about the wrath of God. This remained a mystery until some time later. I advised her to get rid of everything that, she, that gave her contact with the occult, she was wearing a cult bracelet, which we knew had some sort of demonic influence. And around her neck, she wore a silver fairy that I told her she should destroy. Unfortunately, as I found out later, Jane didn't heed my advice. <coughs> Two weeks later, she called to say that she was experiencing more blackouts. I told her to come and see me right away. 
Twenty minutes later, her friend yelled for me from the top of the stairs leading to the center. Jane began to experience a demonic manifestation halfway up the stairs. When I got down to her, she was leaning against the wall, stiff and motionless. I managed to get her up another ten steps, but as soon as she turned the corner, she ran ahead and threw herself headlong over the balcony. I automatically ran after her, grabbed her, and screamed for help. Two friends who were in the center rushed to assist me. I held Jane by her legs while the rest of her dangled over the 20-foot drop to the floor below. I knew that I had her life in my hands. I don't know how I hung on as her body weight was over the point of balance, and with everything she had, she was trying to fall. We managed to pull her back and carry her to my, carried her to my office. As soon as we began to pray, Jane grasped her, her fairy necklace. She held it so tight that blood drained out of her knuckles. It took me about 30 seconds to loosen it from her hand. I walked across the other side of the office to an 8-inch long piece of railway track that sat on my desk. At the time, I was still making a few little jackets for people. And I used the metal as a base to hammer domes and jackets. Jane was in a blackout state behind me. Two people stood between her and me. I had my back to her, so there was no way she could see what I was doing. I took the ornament and smashed it with a hammer. God is my witness. The second the hammer hit the necklace, the demon in her screamed. I hit it five times. And each instant the hammer came down upon it, the spirits in her screamed in terror. It was like something out of a horror movie. I picked the pieces up and threw them out the window to the ground five stories below. Over the next few hours, twelve spirits named themselves and came out of her. <coughs> the first one to leave called himself Joseph Smith. Jane apparently had contact with Mormonism and had even been baptized by them. The other spirits named themselves as mocking, lying, deceit, schizophrenia, false tongues, music, affliction, soul, Marinda, strength, and Lucifer, which I would think was a lying spirit. The two that had the greatest stronghold were strength and Marinda. I commanded Marinda, what is your function? What do you do? I cause blackouts. Jane had been having blackouts since her early teens. During this time, Jane writhed across the floor, screaming, groaning, and choking. The spirits tried constantly to afflict her. On three occasions, she grabbed lamp cords and tried to strangle herself. It took all the strength of four of us to hold her down. She kept hitting her head against the wall or the floor. And she would pull her hands free and attempt to gouge her eyes out. I heard of one young man who actually did so recently while being held in a police cell. At one stage, I noticed that she, in a total blackout state, put her hand in her blouse, pulled a safety pin off her clothing, and with incredible dexterity undid it with two fingers and attempted to swallow it. As I ripped it from, the, from the, the, her fingers, the spirit said, I'm going to kill. I replied that it, har it couldn't harm us because we were, we were Christians. It spat out, not you, her. Jane lay in the corner in a blacked out state. Every time we prayed, she would scream. And strength would reveal itself by making her very strong. We found that if we named the spirit and commanded it to relax, it would obey our commands. She just said, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Luke 10.20 for no apparent reason, she began sucking her thumb like a baby. So I said, Jane, I want you to answer, not Marinda. Marinda, you must stay relaxed. You must obey. Jane, tell me what happened to you when you were a baby. She writhed in anguish. They're taking me away from my mother. No, no. Jane, he was adopted, then spoke in a clear voice about her scarred childhood. Told us of her father, who didn't love her. Talked about, her, talked about a seance at school, in which a spirit was manifest who said that Jane's friend would die in a car accident. The girl, age 12, was terrified. She became afraid to even get in a car. She was killed at the age of 14 when one struck her as she stood on the sidewalk. This left Jane completely filled with fear. I always believed that hypnotism was delving into the spirit realm, but something happened during this time to confirm that fact. 
Even the snap of my fingers, as done by hypnotists, could either put her under or take her out of a blackout state. She then spoke of, a, of different pains that she had suffered throughout her youth, including the physical pain of an ear operation. I asked her what significance her fairy necklace had, so that it gave her a feeling of power over people, saying that as she held it, it, it caused her to freak out. I asked her about the car that she sent me, and I said that the scripture reference that you gave me is, is Psalm 58. Jane interrupted and said, not Psalm 58, Psalm 56.9. We turned to it and read aloud. When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know, because God is for me. The moment the scripture was read, Miranda manifested with Jane screaming in terror. It became clear that Miranda and all her works needed to be renounced and turned from by a conscious act of Jane's will. Jane then verbally renounced Miranda and everything associated with the demonic realm and freely confessed that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. The next day, Jane came into the center and said she was totally set free, and this time she was. Although she was bruised, she didn't remember a thing after reaching the halfway point on the stairs. <coughs> so I read that to illustrate to you a real-life story of what Jesus is referring to here. And so you know what, you know, I think most of you are going to say we haven't ex experienced what a demonically possessed person is like. Some of us probably have. But that gives you some of the signs. Uh, having supernatural strength. Um, their voice changing. Uh, writhing on the floor. Acting like an animal. You know, oftentimes we see these kind of things in charismatic type churches. And they'll say they're slain in the spirit. Well, I might agree with that, but what spirit are you slain in? That's the question. Because I don't see the Holy Spirit doing that to anyone in Scripture. But we see by experience that it does happen when people are demonically possessed. <coughs> so these things are not something to mess around with. You know, I was a kid, and they used to mess around with something we thought was harmless, a Ouija board. And uh, me and my friend next door would mess with this. It was this little board where he had, he had his fingers on one side, his fingers on one side, and there's little glass in the middle, and it'd move around the words, and these spirits would talk to you. You had to mess around with that. That's something to mess around with. Don't mess with the evil spirits. Evil spirits are real, and if you give them a foothold, they'll put their foot in there and barge right in. You don't mess with evil spirits and with things that they do. That's what will happen to you. And if we see someone who's demon-possessed, and we want to drive the demon out of them, um, I probably wouldn't do it unless I knew they were going to repent. Because they're going to be worse, worse off later on. You drive the demon out of them, they don't repent, they're going to be worse off later on. Worse off later on. But this is a, is a rebuke to the Jewish people who are saying that he's doing it by the power of Beelzebub and, um, and he's saying listen I have the power to fill you back up and so you won't be empty any longer and that they won't come back and make it worse they won't come back and make it worse and here we have lastly these last four five verses here <clears throat> while he was still talking to the multitudes behold his mother and brother stood outside seeking to speak with him so there's an issue of Mary actually had other children. And there's some people who have you believe that Mary never had any other children. Uh, and she never had any kind of relations with another man, with a man, period. And the reason they have this position is because of Augustine's position of original sin. Which says that the intimacy within marriage is sinful in what produces the, the original sin in the child. And they want to say Mary was completely sinless all her life. 
Some people want to say that. And therefore, they'll say she could have never have had any other children. And Jesus, of course, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But it's so clear that he had brothers, and he also had sisters. And we go to Matthew 13, 55-56. They say, is this not the carpenter's son? Is, is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? So he had other brothers and sisters. You see the same thing in John chapter 2 and verse 12. And in John 7, 5, uh, this may be the reason they came to talk to him. Uh, John 7, 5 says, For even his brothers did not believe in him. Uh, so maybe they were concerned for the family reputation. Maybe they wanted to, you know, say, settle down, Jesus. Uh, you're kind of making us look bad. Because they didn't believe in him. Later on they did. You know, at least two of his brothers later on believed in him. Uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, was actually the first bishop of Jerusalem. You see there in Acts 15. You see it in Eusebius' uh, history on church history. And he wrote the, the, the epistle of James. So Mary had other children, which kind of destroys that theory of original sin uh, very easily. But Jesus, who is Jesus' real family? Who is his real family? And, and who are Christians? Those in verse 50 who do the will of my Father in heaven. That is his true family. Because those are the ones who will spend all eternity with him. That's his real family. And as, as the Roman Catholic Church tries to exalt Mary and put her into this high place, he says, who am I mother? Who, who's my mother? Those who do my will. Those who obey me. That's my mother. Now she was highly favored by God. That she... Uh, was able to give birth to the Son of God. But his true family, he was putting his mother in her right place. His true family are those who obey him and do the will of the Father. That's who his true family is. So obedience, once again. It's like in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. The house that's built upon the rock are those who do the will of the Father. The house that's built upon the sand are those who hear and don't do. So if you want to truly be Jesus' family, he was saying at that point in time, his brother, I mean, I don't know what to say his mother was at that point in time, but his brothers weren't truly his brothers in the truest sense of the word. You know, I, I have a sister, I have, I have a father. My father's not a Christian. I've talked to him about it many times. And, uh, you know, when, when we're around each other, he respects what I say and tries to hold his tongue when it comes to how he, what he's saying things. And, uh, but... He doesn't seem very interested in Jesus Christ. But my, my true family is what you see here. My brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the ones I'll spend all eternity with. And that's hard sometimes, but you know the Bible does say we expect rejection from our family. And um, it's going to happen. All your family may reject you, or none of them may reject you, but expect that it may happen. Be ready. Have right expectations so you can prepare for it. Okay, that's that's all I have for today. Does anyone have any uh, questions or objections or things they want to add? What's been said? Cover a lot of different topics today. <coughs> the, uh, three days and three nights mm -hmm. in the belly of the whale. Yep. So, uh, um, <coughs> I don't 
always this question of when, you know, when Jesus was crucified, and you know, you have the Jews who believe the day is, you know, day and night is, you know, just part of that day. Um, yeah. I'm not sure even how to, to ask the question, but uh, when do you think Jesus was actually crucified? If he was resurrected on Sunday morning, uh, when would his crucifixion have been, according to three days in the belly, three days and nights in the belly? Uh, well, I've studied this before, uh, but I can't remember off the top of my head what, I, what conclusion I come to. I have to go back and look at my notes on that. But you are right. Any part of the day or part of the night is considered part a day and night. So it would it could be one hour, and it would be considered part of the day. It doesn't have to be a full day, like we would say. And their day started at 6 a.m. That's when their day started, 6 a.m. See, the Bible says, like, third hour of the day. I'm not talking about 3 a.m. I'm talking about 9 a.m. from our perspective. Uh, so I have to go back and look at my notes on that and maybe give an answer next week, but um, I can't remember what conclusion I came to on that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't disagree with that. I just, I guess, I kind of uh, stumble in my thinking about if he was crucified on Friday, then obviously we have a day and a night there, Saturday we have a day and a night there, and then Sunday morning we have a day. Mm-hmm. And it has to become night. So I just don't, you know, just don't want to resolve that, I guess. But Does anyone else have any insight about it? I mean, study it at all? Yeah, something to look into. I mean, people may have that objection sometimes. I, I personally, I, I don't think I've ever even heard that objection in the open air. Oh, I haven't heard it from, from unbelievers. Right. It's, it's, it's a good thing to know, though. But yeah. <clears throat> but I, I've I've heard uh, in debates people bring that objection up. I think it was a debate between William Lane Craig and someone else on the resurrection of Jesus, whether it really happened or not. So. He was. They wanted him to be taken down before the preparation day, or something like that, or it was preparation day, and they wanted him taken down before the high Sabbath, because they didn't want, you know, they didn't want the thieves up to crimp up there during the Passover. So, because the preparation day was the day before Passover, which I think it is. That's that's where I that's why I thought some say it's a little Good Friday thing. Mm-hmm. It's a Catholic tradition. Yeah, I, I, I think Friday was the high Sabbath, and Thursday would have been the preparation day, I think. And then every Sabbath actually falls on a, a Saturday, I don't think. Remembering right here, our study of that. That's fine, huh? Yeah. I had a kind of a question. Sure. Um, the judgment day that you were talking about, um, which the word talks about the judgment day you know, happening on that specific day, um, and how there's a waiting period before that day. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about, like, asking, there has to be a judgment made by God whether to determine whether you're going to Hades or whether you're going to heaven, right? Right. I mean, there has to be sort of a judgment. Because these people that are waiting for the actual judgment day, I guess my question is, uh, I mean, to maybe help clarify that, because I I think that they're not waiting in hopes that they would be able to make it in heaven or something like that. They're, they're kind of... Right. Yeah, if you're in the lower part of Hades, you're definitely going to hell. 
the upper part of Hades is definitely going to be with Christ in the kingdom. Um, but there is a, a period of waiting until Judgment Day comes when all your things are brought before you, and you judge for every thought, every word, every deed. And that's what uh, Revelation, <coughs> uh, the end of Revelation talks about here. Let's see, it's in Revelation chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 11. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and has found no place for them. I saw the dead, small, and great standing before God, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. And death and Hades were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So this is the judgment I'm talking about, where he brings out the books, and he judges them by their whole life. And so I, I think what we see before then, uh, going to Hades, that's like, I guess the best analogy I gave when I gave before was, when someone's put in jail before they actually come to court. Uh, they're put in jail for their crimes, but then they'll come before the judge to actually be judged. It'll be a public judgment for all to see. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's, the, that's really one of the benefits of it. That this is a public judgment for all to see. These are all judged at one time, so everyone can see the justice of God. That he's, he's, he's ruling and reigning. Uh, the sinners and Satan and their side will not win. God will win, and he'll show himself forth to be just before all people. And so, uh, I mean, there's, it's, there is a kind of judgment, I guess you could say, like you're saying, that they're put into Hades in the first place, lower part of Hades. But the judgment day, there's only one judgment day. And uh, it's not as if someone stands before God to be judged, and he puts them in the lower part of Hades and the upper part of Hades. They just go there when they die. Yeah. And then there's a judgment day they stand before the judge, to give an account for their life. Yeah. The rich man lifted up his eyes in torment. Before that, he wasn't there, and he dies in torment. Yeah. So then, that, that uh, story that, that Jesus is relating there. In Luke 16. Indicating any kind of judgment between those two, two points. So it seems like he would, if it were a, if it were a case where God has some kind of judgment uh, you know, throne type of thing, that that would be explained. <coughs> That point. Anytime I see the Bible talking about Judgment Day, it's always singular. So it's not people being judged along the way as they die. So it's a Judgment Day. And <clears throat> it happens at the very end, even after the millennial reign, because people in the millennial reign are still dying and living their life. And they need to be judged, too. So this is the very end, right before the eternal reign. This is what it happens.
Right. No, I, I I think this is talking to let me see here. Yeah, I, I, I don't. Separate seat, the separate judgment, then creates kind of a dichotomy that I have to think about more. I don't, I don't think the judgment talked about in Revelation uh, twenty, starting verse eleven, has anything to do with believers. Uh, believers have already been judged. Uh, the only believers that'll be judged at that judgment are the ones who died during the millennial reign and went to the upper part of Hades to wait for the millennial reign to be over. And then they are judged to see if their names are written in the book of life. That's what it says there. But I, I think those who, who are in Christ when Christ returns, who die before Christ returns, that they are they raised at the beginning of the millennial reign, as Revelation 20 and verse 4 says, I saw thrones and I sat on them, <clears throat> and judgment was committed to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Who had not worshipped the beast or his image, who had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So I, I think, you know, the, the people who, there's a type of judgment, uh, and it says in verse 10 that, we may, that one may receive the good things, the things done to buy, whether good, or whether he's done bad, or whether he's done good or bad. And, it's, and then the next moment, the terror of the Lord persuades men. So that's why I was wondering if that. That seems like there's terror at the Great White Throne. There's good and bad. Even actually says that in Revelation, uh, right? There, where it talks about the good and bad are going to be. Uh, well, that doesn't be mean, I don't think that has to mean that that's that either. So, okay. I mean, I I think that the that Christians will be judged based upon their works, and based upon their works and how they how they lived, God will reward them in the kingdom uh, with authority, with um, Reigning over certain areas, yeah, I I think that's. I'm not so sure. People often picture in their heads like you know this guy's gonna have a shack over here. This guy's gonna have a mansion. I'm not so sure it's gonna work like that. But I don't I don't really know of any scriptures that says that. I mean I know it says he prepares a place for us, 
in a, my father's house there are many rooms. Um, but there will be a type of judgment for us. But the people who are alive right now, who die in the faith, you won't be judged at the White Throne Judgment. That's for those who are raised from Hades after the thousand years. We're already raised by them. We've already been living and reigning with him for a thousand years. And so we receive a reward, which is a judgment by God, based upon what we've done with our Christian life for him. We'll receive a reward then. That's what, that's what I think happens. I, this Second Corinthians 5, it, it could be talking about both of those. Um, you know, so we'll all be judged by God, by Christ to some degree, but the white throne judgment talked about in Revelation 20, starting verse 11, that's, just, that's about those who, who die to sinners while, while in this day and age, before Christ returns, and those who die during the thousand year reign, whether they've died as Christians or not died as Christians. That's what we're talking about there. This specifically would be talking to Christians, although we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The word there is bema. The bema seat is a different. It is a different word than the great white throne judgment. Right, okay. right. So this yeah, I don't would even know where that word comes from. I guess the Greek word there. Yeah. That's what probably what it's referring to there. In that particular verse. That's what I. That's what I think you're saying, right? Yeah. So this would be a judgment of the Christians. Yes, uh, Christians aren't judged the same way. I mean, even in the great white throne judgment, if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you're not judged according to your sins. Your sins have been washed away. Anyone who's not found written in the book of life, they are cast into the lake of fire. You know, so you're not judged the same way because our sins have been forgiven. If I was judged according to my sins, I'd probably have more sins than some people who are older than me, who have never been Christians because of my wickedness I lived in the past. Yeah, but I'm not judged according to those because I've been forgiven of those things. So now, I, he's my advocate, he's my lawyer, he's, he's my acquittal, he's my pardon, and now I'm being judged according to my works, good things I've done. So this, knowing the terror of the Lord after this, that's, what, that's the part that... I think that's, that's talking about the white throne judgment, yes, that's the terror of the Lord. So this could be speaking of both. Yeah, I think it is. Because Jesus is going to be judging the Pope. Yes, all men must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But not all men will have the same kind of judgment, or have the same day of judgment, I guess you could say. You know, but, the, but when it talks about the day of judgment for sinners throughout the scripture, it's talking about that Revelation 20, verse 11, day of judgment for sinners. It'll be terrible for them. They'll give account of every idle word on the day of judgment. So when, when is the, the separation of sheep and goats occurring? When does that occur? You mean, what do you mean by that? Well, we're all familiar with that. Uh-huh. There's a separation of sheep and goats. When does that, does that, I mean, obviously we're, the dead in Christ will rise first and rule with him for a thousand years. But when is this, when is the separation of sheep and goats occurring? Is it occurring before they go to Hades, upper or lower? Is it occurring at the resurrection? Is it occurring... At the judgment seat of Christ, or is it occurring at the great white throne judgment? No, I'm not real sure. It seems to be talking about Matthew 25, like it's his second coming. It says, uh, The Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, and he will sit on the throne of his glory. All nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He said, The sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left. 
And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger, and you took me in. And then it goes down to the wicked. Um, then you say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, and everlasting fire prayer for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. And naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, the righteous to eternal life. Uh, that, that could be referring to those who took the mark of the beast, I guess. Yeah, because they, it seems like they go right right then to make a fire. No, I'm not real sure, brother. Yeah, it does. And there is a kind of, I mean, you read Revelation 19, there is a kind of judgment at the beginning there, too, when he, people have taken the mark of the beast. It says, The beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. They were, those two were cast alive in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. <coughs> and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the throne, on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And this is in Revelation 14.9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or his hand, he shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of the torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Uh, I mean, I guess it could be talking about, in Matthew 25, the... Those who took the mark of the beast it doesn't mention that there. Well, it doesn't say it says these are nations. You, know, you always hear this kind of referred to as just people individually. Have something to think about.
and the Lord identifies different nations that would be better, more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon and Ocapernum, you know, the sacred of the Olympian mentions. And of course, the sexual coercion is the second greatest thing that the information would be there for. I was looking for something, but I can't seem to find it. And it's in one of the, I think it's in Kings or Chronicles, Second Kings or Second Chronicles. Apparently, which I was just to add to the the righteous thing. There's a description somewhere where God is speaking about uh, the kings that keep coming in succession after after David. Mm-hmm. And one of them, he says, David. You not, he explains what David that David was just in everything except for Bathsheba. Right. Kind of, and I think he also said another point. There's just an overall saying. He always, you know, he only stumbled a few big times, like. Right. Like, that's a big stumble, but you know I mean? He's just saying he kept his commandments. Say it is possible he kept all his commandments, he obeyed him. Right. But at one point he blew this. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I say he's a man of God's own heart. People would take that passage, which is talking about, actually, it says that about him before he was chosen as king. And they'll say, well, look, he was a man after God's own heart while he was doing this at Bathsheba. I don't know how people can get that understanding of it. Um, just because someone was a man of God's own heart doesn't mean he had to stay that way. Or that he can't stumble or can't sin. But it all goes back to this involuntary and permanent state that you have to be in. That God chooses to put you in. Yeah, sounds like the guy I was speaking with, he was saying that he can continue stealing and be a thief, but also say he loves God and evangelize. Like it's not possible. Right, not possible. You can't love God and uh, and continue in disobedience to Him. Is that about you must obey God if you love Him. There definitely have been good men in the past, and there are good men today. And anyone can be a good man if they really want to. Repent and trust in Christ and walk according to his commandments. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this to you in fellowship uh, before or not, but we've been reading through Acts, and, and this uh, verse came up, and maybe I mentioned it before, but I want to bring it up again for the uh, those that were here. Acts chapter 10, starting verse 34 and 35. Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Instead of the, the modern uh, evangelical method of us accepting God, we work righteousness and we're accepted by him. Instead of the other way around. Mm-hmm. That's how Calvinists actually turn that around all the time. They think if you're not a Calvinist, you're, you're accepting God or you're initiating salvation. That's never what it's done. You're submitting to the authority that you were commanded to. Yeah. You're never humble initiating yourself. it. Yeah. He initiated, he responded by submission to it. Right. Doesn't take any sovereignty behind, doesn't say you started anything. Right. It's a straw man, really. Yep. I mean, definitely, he seeks us first. He draws us. Yeah. But he, he seeks after everybody and draws all people, all men. So, there's no problem with that. Of course, they set that up that your God is weak and you can't follow him in. For all well, that's not the way God set it up. They want to call God weak because in His wisdom He's chosen to give men free will, and that's that's a dangerous thing to say. That's what they're saying. Can God, in His sovereignty, choose to give men free will? Can He make that decision if He wants to? Is your God lack sovereignty that He can't make that decision? 
Well, I was already turning that around in the video with somebody else I was speaking with saying, because somebody said some comment about God being inept and he thought the Calvinist God wasn't inept. And I was like, you have a God who's all powerful, controls everything. He has the power to make everybody like Christ, especially the people he's elect, and they still don't act like Christ. Right. You're saying he controls all these things and makes them sin. How is that possible? Right. Everybody that's Christian should be a real, I mean, exactly Christ like figure that. Right. No, never fall. That's what God really wants. But their God doesn't want that. Their God doesn't want that, obviously. Hear that or he lacks power to make it happen. Yeah, yeah. So. Lord, all power under control, allowing us to make choices. And that's God not having to Right. Right. Amen. All right. Anyone else?